Right, good morning, everybody. I was going to tell you today is January 1st, but Mike already blew it. Let the cat out of the bag. All right, I'll just go with it. Yes, New Year's Day, the day we celebrate the beginning of a new year. You know, and every year I kind of say something along the, these lines that every year brings with a new hope, right? I mean, hope that in this new year, God will make things in our lives new in the sense of maybe a new opportunity for uh, a job, uh, new strength for victory over old besetting sins. Maybe this year will bring the realization of the hope of reconciliation with family. A lot of families are estranged. In other words, folks, the hope that this year, this new year will be a better year than last year. And so I typically will give some kind of a special New Year's Day message that, you know, centers on a new beginning, something along the lines of forgetting those things that are behind. Last year's over. However you blew it, whatever happened that was not what you really wanted to have happen, forgetting those things which are behind, looking forward to those things which are ahead, as Paul said. Or in other words, a message focusing on, you know, the new and exciting things God may want to do in our lives and in our church in this new year. However, as I thought and prayed about that, um, the Lord directed me back to our study in John's Gospel, interestingly. Because you see, in our study in John's Gospel, we are in chapter 20, a chapter that records for us the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And guys, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest new beginning, the title of this message, in the history of the world. It speaks of new life, resurrection life. We all know what Paul said with regard to this in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has further made possible the new covenant, and with it the new commission. Jesus alluded to that in verse 21, where he said, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. We call it the Great Commission, made possible by Jesus' resurrection from the dead, which was the ultimate new beginning for mankind. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's start by looking at verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Now, first of all, we need to understand that Jesus' resurrection body was a real body of flesh and bones. Yet, he had the power to pass through walls and doors and other physical barriers contrary to any known laws of physics as we understand them. We're going to all know very clearly what's involved and moving in that way because when we get our glorified bodies we'll experience the same thing now john doesn't tell us about jesus meeting with the two disciples on the road to emmaus uh, the afternoon of his resurrection which we looked at last time in luke 24 and uh, how that after spending the afternoon with these two guys they were walking seven miles to the city of emmaus jesus joins himself to them the Bible says that their eyes were hindered. They didn't recognize it. They, they called him a stranger, even though they were Jesus' disciples. Didn't recognize 
who he was. And um, Luke tells us that after spending the afternoon talking with them, verse 27 says he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Wow, the volume of the book, Jesus said, is written of me. And so he began to take these two disciples on an Old Testament Bible study, pointing out all the scriptures that uh, related to Jesus. Quite a study, I'm sure. And by this time, they had come now to the city of Emmaus, and um, they asked him to stay to have dinner with them. He agreed. And Luke tells us that at dinner, as he broke the bread, now, I believe that's a reference to communion, not just the meal in general. There'd be no reason for Jesus to break bread during the regular meal. They would pass it around, and each would break off for himself a piece. I think what the Holy Spirit is saying here is he led them in communion. And as he led them in communion, Luke tells us that uh, their eyes were open and they knew it was Jesus. Could it be possible that they saw the nail prints in his hands as he broke the bread? I think it's very possible. And as soon as they recognized it was Jesus, he disappeared from among them, causing them to hurry back to Jerusalem to tell the other disciples what had happened. Now, it was Sunday evening. It's Sunday evening. The eleven apostles minus Judas, who had hanged himself, were assembled together, perhaps in the very same upper room they had assembled together three days earlier. You see, they were fearful that the Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers would be coming to arrest and crucify them next. And so they were fearful. And all of a sudden, they saw Jesus standing in their midst with the doors still closed and locked. Now it's interesting that the first thing the Lord said to his disciples, as they were gathered together behind closed doors on the evening of his resurrection was, peace be with you. He didn't say joy be with you. That would have been a good thing. Here I am, I'm risen, joy be with you. He didn't say grace be with you. Or even love be with you. He said Peace be with you. Why peace and not the others? Well, there's a couple of reasons for this. First of all, they thought he was a ghost at first and were terrified. Uh, and therefore, he was trying to calm their fears. Turn quickly over to Luke 24. Because Luke gives us a little more uh, detail on what happened. But Luke 24, verse 33 so they arose, that would be the two disciples that had walked with Jesus to Emmaus, right? He's gone now, he disappeared. So they arose from the table that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord, now these are the disciples that were in Jerusalem, are telling the two disciples that walked to Emmaus, hey, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon, to Peter. And they told uh, and they told about the things that had happened on the road. So now these two disciples share what their experience was, that the things that happened on the road now, he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened as, a, as uh, and supposed they had seen a spirit or a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, 
For a spirit, a ghost, does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he said, had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, showing them the um, nail wounds, the nail prints, right? One commentator said this. He said, notice that even though he has a glorified body, there are the nail prints and the pierced side. There is a strange similarity to that body which had, not, had been nailed to the cross. The scars are there. Uh, now, I do not think that there will be scars on our glorified bodies. I think these scars are on his body because they are the scars he bore for us. Uh, he was scarred for us so that you and I might be, be presented to God without spot or blemish, end quote. And guys, that brings us to the second reason, and I think the real reason, uh, the main reason. I'm not saying the other one wasn't legitimate, but this is, I think, the main reason that Jesus said to these disciples, peace be with you, because it spoke of the peace that they now had with God. The Bible talks about two different kinds of peace that are associated with our relationship with God. First of all, peace with God, and then the peace of God. And you can never know the peace of God until you first experience peace with God. So let's look at that one first. Turn to Romans chapter 5. Because Paul mentions this piece in verse 1. He said, therefore, having been justified, another way of saying saved. Therefore, now that you are saved, Paul said, by faith, we have, listen, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot of theology in that statement. Let me give you a little bit of it. God's word teaches us that we were born into this world as children of Adam, separated from God through the fall in the Garden of Eden, of course, and at enmity with him, in other words, rebels at war with God, having the wrath of God or God's judgment abiding upon us, Jesus said in John 3, 36. In other words, we were born into this world as condemned sinners. Judgment was, was hanging over our heads, and in the moment we died without Christ, that judgment was going to fall. Further, the Bible teaches that at one time, God also considered us his enemies. In other words, he was at enmity with fallen man as well. Now, guys, let me stop here and say this. Yes, there are a lot of people who go through life determined not to speak with God or to acknowledge God's presence in their lives or to bow to his will for their lives. In other words, yes, they are at war with God. Now, why are they at war with God? Well, because they blame him for some tragedy or disappointment that they have suffered in life. Maybe they lost a dear friend uh, to them, uh, a dear friend um, of theirs to sickness or um, to an accident of some kind, you know, close family, a dear friend, that kind of thing. Uh, or maybe it was the loss of their health that has caused them to turn against God. Or maybe the loss of a business that they spent years building only to see it wiped out through the COVID lockdowns of a couple years ago, or some other tragedy. I know of a well-known evangelist who turned away from God and became an atheist because of all the evil in the world, including all the wars and the famine. And he believed that a loving God would never allow such a thing if he was real. Therefore, he came to conclude, after being such a successful evangelist in Canada, his meetings, his crusades, 
were drawing as many as Billy Graham. And he turned against God and became an atheist because he reasoned that God must be a myth. No loving God would ever allow people to suffer like this, so he can't be real, and he became an atheist. But for those who haven't become atheists, that have turned against God for whatever reason, uh, this thinking has caused these folks to blame God for all the evil in their lives to the point they want nothing to do with him. They hate God and have declared war on him. So we get that. We understand there, there's folks out there like this. We, we understand that. But listen to me. The vast majority of people at war with God don't even know that they're at war with him. They don't even know that they're at war with God. And they would say, I've never been at war with God. I love God. And as their proof of their love for God, they would tell you how religious they are. You know, I go to church. I keep holy days and sacraments. I light candles and pray the rosary. My Catholicism is coming out. But it isn't just the Catholics. It's a lot of Protestants that fall into this as well. They think because they're religious people and go to church, they're right with God. What they don't realize is that religion is another form of rebellion against God. The very rebellion the Jewish people manifested toward God through their devotion to Judaism, which is, a, of course, a religious system, while having rejected Jesus as their Savior and King, the one their scriptures foretold of his coming. In fact, in Romans chapter 10, Paul talks about his brethren. You might want to turn there, Romans 10. And Paul is talking about his brethren, the Jewish people. Romans 10, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Very religious folks, but unsaved, is Paul's point. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's system of righteousness, I'll paraphrase, and seeking to establish their own system of righteousness or getting right with God or going to heaven, they've not submitted to the righteousness of God. And very simply what Paul is saying, look, we either get to heaven through God's way or we don't get there at all. Just because we are religious and go to church and we've assembled our little system of what I need to do to get right with God and to get to heaven, if it's not what God has said, it doesn't matter how religious you are. A good example would be devout Jews or Roman Catholics or some other group that is not really looking to Jesus to get them to heaven. It might be Jesus plus my good works, lighting the candles and praying rosaries. Or maybe they have a completely different system where Jesus is not even involved. And they think, and the world thinks, that, well, they're very good people. Why do you say that? Well, look at how pious they are. You know, look, look at this. You know, look at these, these Tibetan monks and, these, uh, and, 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 and some of these Muslims that are willing to, to die for their faith. My goodness, certainly they are really right with God. But that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end thereof is what? The way of death. God doesn't account sincerity for righteousness. He accounts faith for righteousness, and it has to be faith in what he has proclaimed in his word as what is necessary to get us into heaven, and it's Jesus. It's Jesus, all right? 
But returning to the point I was making, the Bible presents a picture of man, excuse me, of God and man after the fall. Let me just try to sketch it out, a little picture in your mind. The Bible presents a picture of God and man after the fall with their backs toward each other, arms folded, so to speak, right? Signifying the enmity both God and man had for one another. But then Jesus died on the cross for sinners, causing God's righteousness to be satisfied. The fancy theological word is propitiated. Propitiation simply means God's righteousness was satisfied. Where was it satisfied? On the cross. How was it satisfied? Through Jesus' blood. Because we could not do anything to pay for our sins. We couldn't do anything in and of ourselves to satisfy God's righteousness. God's righteousness. But Jesus lived the perfect life, and he went in our place and died in our place as our sacrificial lamb. The result was when Jesus, and I'm convinced of this, the moment Jesus bowed his head and dismissed his spirit on Calvary's cross, at that very instant, God turned toward man. He turned toward man. Who? Man still had his back toward God and his arms folded in rebellion. But God turned toward us with his hands extended, inviting us to come to him for forgiveness, for fellowship, and for eternal life. And guys, when a person, as most of you well know, when a person accept God, accepts God's offer of forgiveness, forgiveness and comes to Jesus for salvation, that person is forgiven and from that instant is now in perfect, loving fellowship with God. Imagine, if you will, God and man. Now, not all men. Uh, atonement uh, is, is universal in its application, uh, in its uh, availability, I should say. It's not universal in its application. You have to receive it, right? I mean, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, but not everyone's going to heaven. Why? Because you have to receive it. It's available, but you have to accept it, okay? And now we have a picture of God and redeemed man facing one another, embracing. Embracing. I uh, told you about a picture I used to have, a little plaque. I really loved it. You know, maybe you've seen it go online and check out what I'm saying. It's a picture of Jesus in, the in heaven, and one of his redeemed appears there. His back is to the, us. Jesus is facing us, but he's got a biggest bear hug around this redeemed saint. That's what results when a person, somebody stole it, by the way. I had it, and um, we had a microburst years ago, and the roof of my old office blew off, and so the the guys were there fixing things, and I had all these pictures, you know, I took down, you know, and that was the only one that was gone. But I figured, you know what, Lord, if it blesses him like it blessed me and showing me, we want to put that away until after service, because <laughs> Anne's, Anne's got a little picture of it. It's a good one, right? Yeah. yeah. All right. But uh, I, I digress. Um, but can you imagine now? Going from both man and God with their backs against each other, you know, and, and, and enmity, and now Jesus dies, God 
His righteousness is satisfied. He turns towards man with his arms extended. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. And when a person receives Christ, they turn toward God. No longer a stubborn rebel. And God and man embrace. They are now reconciled. They embrace face to face. And uh, in blessed communion and oneness with each other. Guys, this is what Paul meant in Romans 5, verse 1. When he said, having been justified by faith, or in other words, saved, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, guys, the war is now over. God and man have reconciled and are at peace with one another. We have laid down our hostility at that point toward God and his commandments. We've laid down all the rebellion against God and his commandments, surrendered our lives to him in obedience to him as, as uh, his servants, and he in turn has forgiven us and has adopted us into his family where we will stay forevermore, right? This was the peace, by the way. We're still kind of in the Christmas season. This was the peace the angel was speaking of when he announced the birth of Christ to those shepherds 2,000 years ago, and then the angel went on to say, I think it was in Luke 2, verse 14, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. The angel isn't talking about peace on earth between people and nations. Understand that. Jesus came the first time, listen, not to bring peace between man and his fellow man politically, he came the first time to bring peace between man and his God personally. Now listen to me. Peace with God is positional. It's positional, all right? But peace with God is essential. If we're going to experience the second kind of peace the Bible talks about for the child of God, and that is the peace of God, and that the idea is practical, everyday peace. One is positional, the peace of God, excuse me, peace with God, positional. Peace, the peace of God is practical. Turn to Philippians 4. Because Paul talks about the peace of God. This practical, everyday peace that we're talking about right now. Philippians 4, verse 6, you all know it, verses 6 and 7, where Paul said, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all human comprehension, is the idea, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Let me say this. Peace with God is objective, whereas the peace of God is subjective. In Romans 5, verse 1, when Paul talks about us having peace with God, when we, we receive Jesus as our Savior, in the Greek, it's in the present tense, indicating something that exists right now. In other words, this isn't a peace that we are waiting for in the future. It's a peace that is ours from the moment. We accept Jesus as our Savior, a peace that will last unbroken forever. When I say that peace with God is subjective and not sub... Excuse me, I'm going to mess this up because I've got too many objectives and things. 
When I say that peace with God is objective, not subjective, I mean it isn't based on feelings, which are up and down at any given moment, right? You're, you're you know, up and down and whatever, you know, based on whatever circumstance you're going through at the moment. Uh, that kind of peace is up and down. Okay, feelings, I should say. Uh, this peace, peace with God, is based on the objective truth that we have entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ based on our faith, a relationship which is eternal and never-changing, listen, regardless of how we feel at any given moment about our walk or our relationship with Jesus. I say that because the devil uses feelings quite effectively to get people to think they're not saved. Well, how does he do that? Well, he, gets, he tempts you to do some sin and you fall to it, you give in to it, and now he whispers in your ear, you know what, you're feeling lousy, right, about what you did. And now he whispers in your ear, you can't be a Christian. A real Christian would never have done that. Feelings are subjective. They're up and down depending on the situation we find ourselves in. Understand your salvation is not based on your feelings. Now, I think most of us know that in principle. But in practice, we often blow it. Because although we know it's not, you know, something that is based on our feelings, yet we still often do base our salvation on how we're feeling. That's salvation peace, peace with God, not based on feelings. However, the peace of God is subjective. First is objective, this is subjective. And because of where we are in our walk with God at any given moment, this peace can, listen, come and go the peace of God. Jesus talked about this peace the night before his crucifixion. Turn to John 14. And I'm looking at John 14, verse 27, which took place in the upper room just before they left to make their way through the streets of Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives, where he would spend the remaining part of the night in prayer before being arrested in the garden and taken uh, to trial and then crucified. So this is still in the upper room the night before his crucifixion. And at one point, he said to them, John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Well, what was their heart so troubled about? Well, he, he had begun to tell them uh, back in chapter 13 that he was going away soon. And where he was going, they couldn't follow him. He begins chapter 14 by telling them, don't let your heart be troubled. Uh, I'm going to come back for you. All right? Uh, you know, I'm going to the Father, but I'm going to come back. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when I come back, I'm done preparing that place. I'm going to come back and take you to be with me. And from that point on, you'll never be separated from me ever again. Okay? But their heart, they didn't have all that knowledge yet. So all they heard was he's leaving. And we're going to be left alone without him. And their hearts were troubled. You have to understand, these disciples were being groomed for the last three and a half years to take over the ministry Jesus had begun. They knew that. The greatest ministry in the history of the world, to bring the good news of the gospel to fallen, sinful, lost people. And they were about to enter some very difficult days. As he was preparing to go to the cross, and then he would rise again, and then shortly after, he would return back to his Father in heaven. And so because fear and anxiety had gripped 
his disciples' hearts. The Lord made them and all of us, including everyone in this room, a precious promise as his disciples. He said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And guys, this is a special supernatural peace, the kind of peace the world knows nothing about and cannot offer anybody. When Jesus said that the peace he gives to those who belong to him was, and I'm quoting him, not the kind of peace the world gives to troubled hearts, he is, he's, of course, talking about the fallen world system that is controlled by the devil. The devil knows that people can't function in an environment of stress, turmoil, turmoil anxiety, and fear for very long without seeking some kind of relief. Otherwise, they're going to have a nervous breakdown. People can't function under that kind of stress without trying to alleviate the pressure in some way, right? And so Satan knows this. He's been studying us for a lot of years. He knows this. And so after ramping up people's fears and stresses about whatever, he, the devil, then tempts them to grab for worldly, worldly peace through artificial means because that's the only kind of peace the world can offer. It's a, a peace based on artificial means. The so-called peace that the devil and through him the world which he controls offers to people comes uh, comes through this is the what the world offers people to get peace drugs alcohol right uh, hypnosis transcendental meditation tm right goat yoga which is the dumbest thing i've ever heard you got the king of kings with his arms extended. Come to me and I'll give you peace. You go lay down with some goat on your back, wearing a diaper, walking on you. What kind of peace is that going to bring? The world's got all kinds of ways that they offer people peace, right? Things that will help them, listen, escape the pressures they are experiencing in life. If their stress and lack of peace is a result of a volatile, combative marriage, the devil tells them the only peace they're ever going to know um, is by separating from their spouse or simply divorcing them altogether, right? In other words, it's a peace that comes from escaping the situation from running away. You know, King David expressed this in Psalm 55. You can turn to it quickly. I mean, David wasn't super believer he had his faults i think we would all agree and he talks about the kind of peace that you know he was thinking about taking to himself but in psalm 55 starting with verse 4 he said and i'll read it to you the nlt my heart pounds in my chest the terror of death assaults me fear and trembling overwhelm me and i cannot stop shaking it's a man under a lot of stress, pressure, and so on. Oh, that I had wings like a dove, then I would fly away and rest. I would fly far away to the quiet of the wilderness, how quickly I would escape. And so David was, was putting into words what a lot of people feel when they're going through a very difficult time of stress, depression, anxiety, whatever it might be. They want to run away. They think if I just run away, that's going to bring me peace. I'll get divorced, I'll, do, I'll separate, I will uh, quit the job, I will go off into the wilderness and, and be a Thoreau or whatever it might be just to get away from everything because that's where I'm going to find my peace. This is often the kind of peace people in general seek. 
It's a false peace due to escapism. Most often it's not the kind of escape where they run away physically. It's they escape into this, uh, into this um, world through drugs and alcohol where they escape that way. It's still escape, but, um, and I will say this, you know, numbing yourself with a substance will bring you some initial peace. If it didn't, people wouldn't do it. But it's not a true and lasting peace. It's an artificial peace that will lead a person into dependency to that drug and ultimately into bondage where, listen, the so-called cure is worse than the disease that caused you to get into the cure. I mean, alcoholism, drug abuse, is never, uh, uh, never solves the problem. All it does is it makes things worse. And that's what the devil does. He's pushing your buttons to get you full of anxiety and stress and worry. And then he shoves alcohol your way or pills your way. And they become more of a problem than whatever the initial problem was you were going through. In extreme times of anxiety, pressure, and depression, the devil tries to push people into the ultimate escape. Suicide. Suicide. It's no mistake, guys, or accident that as our society devolves more and more into chaos, confusion, madness, and anarchy, that alcoholism and drug abuse and suicides have risen exponentially. Go online. You can see what I'm talking about. In contrast to this, Jesus said that he wants to give us true peace. Not like the world gives, again, which is artificial and often destructive. This peace is only found in Jesus. Now, if you don't hear anything else, don't miss this. This peace that God offers is only found in Jesus, as Paul the Apostle put it in Ephesians 2, verse 14, for he himself, Jesus, is our peace. True peace in life doesn't come from a pill or a program. It comes from a person, capital P. And his name, of course, is Jesus Christ. The peace that comes from Jesus is real, it's lasting, and it's liberating. Everyone in this room who has accepted Christ, who is in bondage to alcohol or drugs or something else, you know what I'm talking about. You know Jesus has set you free. You don't need to, I, you know, I used to go out drinking with the guys all the time before I got saved. Then I became a Christian. I stopped drinking. My unsaved friends thought, oh, you're, you can't drink because you're a Christian. You can't have any fun anymore. As if drinking was that much fun. And I said, actually, it's not that I'm feeling I can't drink. I can drink. Paul said, all things are lawful for me. But he also said, I won't be brought under the bondage of anything. God has set me free through Christ. I don't have to drink anymore. I'm high on Jesus. That sounds a little corny. Okay? But it's absolutely true. I get my joy from the Lord, from his word, from helping people, from sharing the gospel, from going to church and being around you guys, the saints, singing praises to God, studying his word. Can I go to a party if I want to? Of course I could. Do I want to? No. It's not that I can't do something. I don't have any desire to do it anymore. It's a weird kind of a thing, isn't it? You really become a new creation. Old things pass away, and all things become new. And you, you, the only way to experience what I'm talking about is you have to give your heart to Christ. 
And then you'll understand. Because listen, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, we know where you're coming from as an unbeliever. We were once there. You have no idea where we're coming from as New Testament born-again believers until you give your heart to Jesus, which I encourage everyone in this room and watching online to do before we close for today's message, right? This is a peace that God offers through Christ. It's a peace the world knows nothing about because it's a supernatural peace that comes directly from God. And as Paul said in Philippians 4, verse 7, it surpasses human comprehension. In John 14, in his final discourse to his disciples the night before his crucifixion, Jesus introduced the subject of his supernatural peace. And then later on in chapter 16, he brings his discourse on the subject of peace to a climax by saying in chapter 16 of John's Gospel, quickly turn here, John 16, and just please listen carefully because the words are important, obviously. Okay? So, in verse chapter 14, he's talking about practical peace. In chapter 16, he kind of wraps it up by talking about um, positional peace. Peace with God, right? And he said in verse 33, these things I have spoken to you that, what? In me. That's salvation, folks. A person doesn't, isn't placed in Christ until they receive him as their Lord and Savior. So in me, in other words, salvation, peace with God, which is where all peace begins, right? Because you have to know God before practical peace can fill your heart. But these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Notice something important, guys. Jesus didn't promise that he would give us peace by taking away all the problems and pain of life. He said, in the world you're going to have tribulation. So those people that tell you if you're go having tribulation, that's of the devil you got to rebuke that. That can't be of God. He wants to bless you and give to you and prosper you and so on. That's of the devil, that kind of thinking. Jesus said of his true disciples, in this fallen world controlled by the devil, you're going to have tribulation. Get it through your head. This idea that when I gave my heart to Christ, he promised me a, a path of roses and sunshine all the time, that is exactly not, not what... The Bible teaches. But he did promise to give us a supernatural peace during or in the midst of the turmoil, tragedies, and pain, and I think coming persecution that we would experience in this life as we live in this fallen world system. Guys, the peace of God is a peace that only a child of God can experience because it's an attribute of God's divine nature. We talk about the fruits of the Spirit, right? Galatians 5, 22 and 3, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness. You know, you can read it on your own. You realize that what is called the fruits of the Spirit are nothing more than God's attributes being produced in the life of a person, a Christian. All of that is really speaking of God's uh, divine nature, right? And guys, the only way for a person to experience any attribute of God in their life, again, all of which are exclusive to his nature, is to have God's nature planted within them. 
And that only happens when they receive Jesus into their heart as their Savior and the Holy Spirit moves in. I think it was Romans 5, verse 5, he has made us, made us partakers of his divine love. But that's just one of the attributes of God. When a person opens their heart to Christ, prays to receive Jesus into their heart. At that moment, as Peter tells us, they become partakers of God's divine nature, 2 Peter 1, 4. And guys, that really brings us back to our text in John's Gospel, chapter 20. Let's read verses 19 to 22. Verse 19, on the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jewish leadership, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. At this point, the Holy Spirit now enters Jesus' disciples, making them partakers of God's divine nature. At this point, they are officially New Testament born-again believers. Hold on to that thought. We'll come back to it next week. It's important, okay? Very important. You say, you, these guys weren't Christians up until this point. They were believers. They were saved. But in the Old Testament sense, they were not New Testament Christians until right now. Why? How? Well, we'll talk about that next time. Because I want, to, I want to touch on how incredibly important this statement is. A lot of people read it and blow right by it. And don't understand what Jesus... He's giving them the Great Commission. As my Father has sent me, verse 21... So I am now sending you. But you can't go into all the world until you are empowered. We'll talk about that more next time. In these few verses, you have the foundation for living and uh, the Christian life and doing the work God's called each of us to do as Christians. We, we can't take it lightly. But let me just end by saying that the peace of God, once again, practical, everyday peace, doesn't happen automatically once you become a Christian. In fact, some of you might be sitting there thinking to yourselves, well, I am a Christian, and I still feel overwhelmed with stress, anxiety, and lack of peace. So what gives? Maybe Christianity is just a bunch of lies. I tried. It didn't work for me. Well, before you go there, before you go there, I will acknowledge that many Christians still worry still experience stress, still have nervous breakdowns, and yes, even sometimes can still commit suicide. Why is that? I mean, God promised us peace when we gave our hearts to Jesus. So why are so many Christians not experiencing this peace? The reason is they aren't following the biblical injunctions for maintaining practical, everyday peace in their hearts. We need to understand what the Apostle Paul admonished in Colossians 3, verse 15, when he said, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Listen, by saying this, Paul was implying that the peace of God can and will, can and will rule in our hearts, listen, if we let it, if we let it. We need to understand this. You see, what Paul is telling us, is that God's peace can be hindered. 
or strangled to death through worry. By the way, that's what the German root for the word worry means, to strangle. When we worry, we strangle our relationship with God. The flow of God's Spirit dries up. The peace that we may have once known is gone. Why does that happen? Because we, because of worry, we focus our thoughts and attentions on the problem. Like Peter focused his attention on the storm, right? The Sea of Galilee. When he kept his eyes on Jesus, he was able to walk on water, do the impossible. As soon as he got his eyes off the Lord and onto a circumstance, he began to, to worry, he began to freak out, he began to sink. I mean, sometimes we just don't, we, we, we lose sight of our God, the one who can solve any problem. Turn to 2 Corinthians 4, verse, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 4, starting with verse 16, so we bring this to a close. In fact, I'm going to give you four scriptures. Okay, I'll, I'll, I had you turn to this one. I'll just have you, I'll read the other ones to you. You can write them down, the references. Again, if you get your eyes off of God and onto your problems, that's what the devil wants. It's going to rob you of your peace, rob you of your victory, and maybe even rob you of your faith. That's why we got to keep our priorities, our perspective right. Here's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, starting with verse 16. Uh, read it to the NLT. That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. I just turned 67. I understand that part where the body is dying. Verse 17, for our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can now we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on gaze on things we cannot see. That would be the eternal things, heavenly things. For the things we see now will soon be gone. But the things we cannot see, invisible, eternal, spiritual things, will last forever. Colossians 3, verse 2. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. These are all scriptures that will help us to maintain our practical everyday peace. And the gist of it is we've got to keep our eyes on God, on his word, on his promises, reminding ourselves of his power, right? Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Here's a good one. I think I'll have you turn to Philippians 4 again. I want to read this one to you. Because often we read Philippians 4, verses 6 to 8, and we don't really continue to verse 9. I'm going to show you how important it is. So Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9, again out of the NLT. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and don't fill your mind with the garbage of the world. Good heavens. You know, I've got cable. Uh, you know, and, and, and somebody said the Internet um, is not all bad. It's like a, a, a big city like Chicago. You go into Chicago, there are beautiful places you can enjoy with your family. World-class museums. Um, all kinds of beautiful things. You got to know where they are. You got to stay in those neighborhoods. You could, but there are places in Chicago that are bad news. 
full of violence, full of evil. You stay away from those. You don't write off the whole city, right? You just make sure you stay in areas where you can be edified. Beautiful artwork, museums, and so on. You know, Paul says, look, you want to live a victorious Christian life. Starts with the way you think, what your mind is filled with. You fill your mind with the garbage on the on the um, uh, cable, a lot of garbage on cable. You're going to start thinking garbage thoughts. It's going to affect the way you live your life for Christ. But Paul says, look, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. This is important. Fix your thoughts on what is true. Now, of course, this is all with regard to God. You know, what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Verse 9. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me. Everything you heard from me and saw me doing, then the God of peace will be with you. It's not just about coming to church and filling your head with good stuff about God from the Word. You have to have that desire, James said. You know, people deceive themselves into thinking if they hear the Word, that's all they need. But they don't go out and live the word. Paul says, you want God to be with, the God of peace to be with you? Then you come to church, you fill your mind with God's truth, everything that's pure and lovely and of good report and praiseworthy, and then you go out there into the world with a desire that God, through His Spirit, would energize those truths and make them living and powerful in your life. There's a lot of Christians who never... They leave church and it's like, that part of their life gets closed off. Okay, did my church thing. Closed the door. Now I'm in the world the whole week. And, and honestly, it's like they compartmentalize their Christianity. God and the world. They have no problem doing it. How can you, how can you as a believer think you can combine the world and God and think you're going to have a healthy walk? You know? It's all God. I come to church. I get my batteries recharged, be around other Christians, hear the Bible taught. Then I go out and live for God. I learn about God, and I live for God all week long. I'll give you one more. You've heard it before. You don't have to turn to it. And I'll, and I'll end with this. Isaiah 26, verse 3. You will, Talking about peace, right? You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. The Hebrew um, in Isaiah 26.3 is literally, you will keep him or her in peace. Peace. It's repeated. You will keep him or her in peace, peace. Or in other words, in double peace, or the idea is in perfect peace. But to experience this peace, guys, you need to have your thoughts stayed or the ideas fixed on God. Because you trust him and have absolute confidence in his power, his ability to, you know, uh, solve any problem. And in his promises, which I love Romans 4.21, uh, being confident of this very thing that what God has promised, he is able to perform. We don't read a promise of God and go, well, how are you, how are you going to do that, God? My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Well, I'm out of a job. 
I have the rent or the mortgage to pay. How are you going to provide the money? I got no prospects. We don't have to worry about that. God will take care of it. He's promised us something, and he is able to perform whatever it is he has promised us. Guys, this peace can only come through faith. The kind of peace we're talking about is supernatural. And we only connect to God through faith. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. And then I love Galatians 2, 20. Paul said, look, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The life I live, I now live by faith. Well, the just shall live by faith. Not just say by faith. The just shall live by faith. And so, guys, we need to trust in his word. If we're going to maintain everyday practical peace, you've got to be in the word. And as you read the word, you can't let it go in one or not the other. You have to focus on the promises. Read the stories of how God, um, <laughs> wow, how he did miraculous things, you know? How he wiped out thousands of God's enemies. Um, you know, uh, one angel. Uh, one night went as the Assyrians had surrounded Jerusalem. They were done. They were the Assyrians were the strongest nation on the face of the earth at that time. Here they are. They've, they've surrounded Jerusalem. Isaiah goes into the Lord. Lord, look at what's going on. Don't you worry about it. I'll take care of it. God sent one angel that night and wiped out 185,000 Assyrians. And when God's people woke up the next morning and looked over the wall, there the enemy was all dead. Now, we want our enemy saved. I just bring that story up to show you that our God is a God who loves, if I can put it this way, I don't mean to be irreverent, when the de deck is stacked against him. Because with God, nothing is impossible. Oh, the odds aren't very good, Lord. <laughs> well, that's because your God's too small. Trust in his word and cling to his promises in this season of uncertainty, remembering that the just shall live by faith. And then, guys, the peace of God which surpasses all human understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Look, guys, the Christian life in general is the greatest new beginning you'll ever experience. The moment you gave your heart to Jesus, you entered into a new life. Forget the new year. You entered into a new life. And that life is ongoing each and every day. To get the fullest from this life, you have to walk by faith. Trusting in God's power and his promises. Trusting that what he, whatever he has promised, he is fully capable of bringing it to pass. I don't have to worry about it. And, and, and stay away from the idea of trying to figure out how he's going to do it. That just diminishes faith. Just trust that what God has promised you, he is able to perform. And so next time, guys, we will continue on with this thought. Um, because again, Jesus says something to these guys in the upper room. Now, something happens, actually, that when you talk about a new beginning in the history of God's people, here it is, the new covenant, the new commission, and so on. And we'll start looking at that uh, next time. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the new beginning we've 
experienced in Jesus, the moment we put our faith in him. And now, Lord, we pray for those here this morning and watching online who have not prayed to receive you into their heart, Lord Jesus, as their Savior. And their life is um, destructing before their very eyes. They have no peace. They have no joy. They have no purpose. In you, they'll have all of that and much more. So, Lord, we just pray for their souls, the souls of all of our loved ones who don't know you, that, Lord, you would touch them in a way that their eyes would be opened and they would realize that they need you desperately because they can't live this life without your power and strength. And so we thank you, Lord. We ask you to make this new year a year like we've never experienced before in the history of our lives for, uh, with you. And we just thank you. We ask all this now. In Jesus' precious name, amen.